So welcome, Eddie, and I'm so glad you took the time today to join us. And our first question for you is, why did you become a physical therapist? So I was an athlete in high school, and I experienced problems with my knees, which, you know, partly were due to things that I didn't know I've learned a whole lot about later on in PT school. But um, when I was thinking about careers, I originally thought that I would want to go on to med school. And then when I was actually doing my volunteer work over the summers prior to actually applying to college um, as part of my high school requirements, I was following a physician and realized that the interaction that I had imagined would be between a physician and a patient was really so brief and didn't seem like it was very, wasn't fulfilling from the perspective of either the patient or the physician, at least from my perspective as a high school student. And so I started thinking about what other uh, professions might be available to me. And um, then my coach suggested that I go see a physical therapist for my knee. And I actually had never, and didn't even know physical therapy was a profession. But that prompted me to go to seek physical therapy services and realized, wow, this is a whole profession that has to do with the body and being able to help people to move better where you actually have time to develop a relationship with them and um, have a helping relationship that is built on knowing somebody as opposed to just running in and out, in and out of a room. Mm -hmm. So that was the first inkling. So when you graduated from the University of Miami with your physical therapy degree, what direction did you take? Did you start out right in neuro or something else? Yeah, so I had been hired prior to graduation by a brand new rehab hospital that at that time was part of a corporation called um, Rehab Hospital Corporation, which was PT-owned. It was a brand new hospital that was being built in uh, probably 30 miles from where the university was. And um, it was just opening up. And so we had no services, no policies and procedures. And I was put in charge of the spinal cord injury program, developing the spinal cord injury program. And I was a new grad, <laughs> so I had to go to a lot of continuing education courses and learn about spinal cord injury and um, really developed a, a love for it. And it turns out that because the hospital was in such, it was because it was brand new and it was still being built while we were trying to develop the services, I worked as a per diem PT at a local county hospital. And one of my very first patients happened to be a young man with physical with uh, spinal cord injury. Let me say that again. One of my very first patients happened to be a young man with spinal cord injury, and he was about my age. So I was a brand new PT grad. So, uh, you know, it's a bachelor's degree. So I was about 22 at the time, and he was also around that age. I think he was 23, but he had a family already. You know, and I, and here he is in this time with the road arrest beds, which you probably remember, probably not you, Dana. But, um, and I kept, I remember thinking, gosh, there's, if there's anybody that I can help as a physical therapist, you know, it will be this young man who, you know, he is here with a spinal cord injury and has his whole life ahead of him. Can you tell us about your work with turtles? Yeah, I would love to talk about turtles. <laughs> I remember the turtles. <laughs> Look at so, the turtles. Yeah. So, as part of my um, <clears throat> core courses, as a, P a new PhD student in my first year, I had a, a neurophysiology course. 
And so, you know, we learned these days neurophysiology, neuroscience in general, is really, really focused on the cellular molecular ends of the spectrum. And it's really interesting to me because that's kind of the, the pendulum started with system, systems neuroscience and really has swung to the cellular molecular. And I really hope that it's some ways swinging back. But... Um, in that first year course, I learned a lot about cellular and molecular mechanisms and channels and receptors. And then we had a lecture from a, a Paul Stein, Dr. Paul Stein, who was studying central pattern generated behaviors in turtles. And so he came in and he uh, was demonstrating with the turtle that this turtle who had, that had a complete spinal cord transection was able to generate these very beautiful, elegant scratching behaviors and that were very specific to the site where you stimulated and demonstrating the, the you know, intelligence, if you will, of the spinal cord and how it's able to take sensory information and transform it into a motor output that's appropriate for the sensory information. I'm like, oh my God. That is magic. I have to. That's what I have to study. Not really thinking very much about whether or not, you know, a physical therapist with a background in studies of turtle scratching behavior was going to be something that was going to be, you know, get me a faculty job or a postdoctoral position later on, you know, which, you know, my colleagues who were with me at the same time, they were getting invited to give talks and I was not getting invited to give talks at PT schools. And in fact, very sad part of my history. I um, I had I sent my an abstract to the WCPT, which at that time was they were having a conference in um, DC, and I had never heard of anybody who had had their abstract declined by the WCPT, but my abstract was declined by the WCPT. So, <laughs> a very sad part of my early. Experience. As a but PhD now you student. send them your CV and you yeah. say, <laughs> Don't you wish you accepted it? <laughs> so, have you done anything with the with the central pattern generator uh, work in humans? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great question. So, so when I finished, when I was so before I finished my PhD. I started you know, having discussions about the relevance of this work to humans. And at that time, you know, the, the common wisdom was that over the course of evolution, that the pattern generators related to locomotion had ad- migrated to the brainstem level. And um, so that would suggest that they really didn't have much relevance in people with spinal cord injury, for example, for assisting with you know these innate motor behaviors like locomotion, but I was at a um, conference in I'm pretty sure it was in Ventura, California, and I was pouting to my fellow you know student attendees about how nobody was asking me to give talks, <laughs> <laughs> and you know what was the relevance of pattern generators to humans, and someone said to me, there is an investigator here who has a manuscript with him that he has just submitted to brain. And it is about involuntary stepping in a human with spinal cord injury. You need to talk to him. And I thought, and I found him. And he indeed had just submitted this manuscript to brain. He had this very elegant 
evidence that this involuntary stepping behavior was actually occurring at the level of the spinal cord. He's, he'd done a series of very well-controlled experiments on this as, as a case study to demonstrate that the, they, that the behaviors are being generated from spinal cord circuits and um, that they were being turned on by the very same things that we know from the literature turns them on in animals. And I was like, oh my gosh, you're my, you're my hero. And I went to do my postdoc with him. So I did my postdoc with him, Dr. Blair Calancy, at the Mima Project to Cure Paralysis. Wow, that's fascinating. What a coincidence. Yeah, yeah, it really was a coincidence. So how did you end up at Shepherd? Oh, gosh. So I was at the Miami Project for, you know. So I started my postdoc there, and then Dr. Calancy took another faculty position in Rochester, at, um, in uh, upstate New York. Mm-hmm. And I think it's Upstate Medical University. It's the one in Rochester. I should probably know that, but I don't. I think that's where George Folk is, actually, now. I think he's at the same institution where George is. Anyway, it's in Rochester, New York. And he, uh, and so the Miami Project said, wow, you know, we really are interested in the studies that you have been doing together. Would you be willing to stay on um, and continue your, the work that you're doing? And I also had an appointment at the physical therapy, in the physical therapy program, the Department of Physical Therapy. And so, I mean, I had already a very strong community there in the physical therapy program in Miami, and now the opportunity to really have a lab at the Miami Project to Cure Paralysis. So it was a really a natural fit. And I actually stayed there for, you know, it was almost 20 years that I was uh, at the Miami Project between the PT program and the Miami Project together as, a, as joint appointments. And so it was really very, very productive and useful. And during that time, over the course of that time, I, although my work started with this interest in using central pattern-generated behaviors to contribute to walking function and see if we could um, make the pattern generator more robust and therefore improve walking function that way, over that time I really started to realize that while you can make the pattern generator robust by treadmill-based training, that doesn't really seem like it translates also well to overground training. And that the training piece as opposed to the pattern generator piece, is the piece that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And that neuroplasticity that comes from training applies not only to walking, but certainly to hand function as well. And then about the same time where I was starting to think about that, I came to a CSM programming and heard about um, the neuroplastic changes that happen in people with spinal cord injury in the brain. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh my gosh, are you kidding, people? who have spinal cord injury have their brain reorganized in a way that's very much like what we see in people with stroke. And so maybe if we can get the brain to be better organized, maybe the brain can be more effective at sending information down through the remaining spinal cord pathways, even if there's nothing we can do about the spinal cord pathways themselves. And so that started in a whole new area of research now in, in upper extremities. And then um, got it. I had been asked by... Shepherd Center several times to consider when they created the position of director of spinal cord injury research, and then um, a couple times after that, when they were looking for someone to fill that role, and I always thought, mm, you know, I have s- such great support here in this academic institution, and Shepherd is not affiliated with an academic institution, mm-hmm. and so 
I, you know, I said, thank you very much. It's a lovely clinical institution, but I don't know that I could really do my work there. And then I did a sabbatical in Barcelona. So I spent almost a year at the Gutmann Institute in Badalona, right outside mm -hmm. of Barcelona. And that is basically just like Shepherd Center. It's almost the same number of beds. And they see spinal cord injury. They people see people with spinal cord injury, people with stroke, and so it's very, very similar. And I, they had a very robust research department, a research enterprise that was very good at getting grants from the EU. And I thought, wow, you really can do good research at a clinical center. And not only that, you have people. Much it's much easier to be able to recruit people because you have them in center, and they mm -hmm. you can you know discuss their pro your projects with them. And so um, when I came back to Miami from my, uh, from my sabbatical year, I was just starting to do, I was finishing up actually a big um, trial of hand function when I started to really have difficulty with recruitment. And prior to that time, I never had difficulty with recruitment because I was studying locomotor training during a time when that was a new thing, mm -hmm. you know. And I would get people come from all over the world who want, they'd come to Miami in the winter and spend three months participating in my 12-week locomotor training study, you know, and didn't have any trouble with recruitment. But when you're talking about recruiting people with tetraplegia, people with tetraplegia typically can't just fly across country or come to stay with you by themselves. They have to have a caregiver or a spouse come with them. And so it's a much higher hurdle for people to be able to come and participate. And that study was under-recruited. And I really started thinking, if I really want to um, pursue hand-functioning training as a, as a line of research and identify ways to make the best use of what we, I know as a physical therapist and about neuroplasticity and neuromodulation, I'm probably going to need to find a place where I have access to a clinical population. And then Shepard called me again. And um, I said, well, let's, yeah. let's have a discussion. You know? and, and in fact, so I, I moved to Shepard in 2014. And uh, I took an NIH grant with me that I had gotten at the Miami Project, which was related to whole body vibration. And um, my first grant application as a Shepherd's um, employee was related to hand function. And it was with the Department of Defense, with one um, congressionally directed um, CDMRP, congressionally CD, congressionally directed medical research program. And um, we did that as a pragmatic clinical trial where people were divided into groups and Everybody got hand training, um, you know, focusing on things that one would do in a typical day. One group got sham brain stimulation. One group got brain, real transcranial direct current stimulation. Another group got peripheral nerve stimulation. All things that are clinically accessible because my lab is really dedicated to things that can be used by lots of people as opposed to things that are really expensive and people can't access. And so... Uh, we were over-recruited. We had to request to DOD to expand our subject pool because there were so many people who wanted to participate and the therapists were so excited to be able to participate in research. And so it, it, was a, it really was a great demonstration that you can do really good research in a clinical setting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's such a beautiful story 
because we were talking about kind of the gaps in, in years and, you know, I thought with the Miami project, there's gotta be something that called you to Shepherd Center. Um, and the, I mean, there, that's yeah. what it is. There was a calling for you to go to this place where perhaps there wasn't what you thought was there that you needed, but you didn't need it. Yeah. You could still create. Yes, absolutely. And I think over the years, my, my research has, so when I first started off, I think like most people, I was very enamored with high tech measurement and high tech interventions. And what I realized is that even if those high tech interventions are useful, they're not going to be accessible to the vast majority of people. If you need you know, expensive equipment that takes a lot of training to do, and it's difficult to, um, and, and the person can't access it frequently enough to actually get neuroplasticity. You know, you can have an intervention that, you know, you do for a week and you show this valuable neuroplasticity, but unless the person can retain those changes and capitalize on those changes and has access to it, they're not going to, they won't, they likely won't retain them. And so doing things that are accessible to people who are working in the clinic, physical therapists, occupational therapists, I think is really critical, mm-hmm. you know. This concludes the shortened version of the interview with Adele Field Fauté. Download the full interview to hear about her master's and PhD studies, as well as her process of becoming the editor in chief of the JNPT. Thank you for listening.